Welcome to the Clinical Pre-Hospital Care Research Forum Journal Club. Here in our PCRF Journal Club, we promote evidence-based practices by critically evaluating the latest science in emergency medical services. We hope our discussion will help advance EMS practice. Through the generous support of our sponsors, Limmer Education and ESO, we are able to make science more accessible and understandable. All right, everyone, welcome to the October 2022 edition of the Pre-Hospital Care Research Forum podcast. Again, special thank you to our sponsors, Limmer Education and ESO, for making it possible. I'm Remley Crow, and today I am joined by Dr. Tony Fernandez, Jeff Rollman, and Dr. Bill Toon. And we're also very excited to have with us authors from the paper, Susie Burnett and Dr. Brian Clemency. As a reminder, the article that we are reviewing today is a qualitative analysis of the experiences of EMS clinicians in recognizing and treating witnessed cardiac arrests. And this was published in Pre-Hospital Emergency Care and it's hot off the press. As always, the article is paired with an article written by Dr. Tony Fernandez in EMS World called Journal Watch. And I encourage you all to check it out. It's at emsworld.com under education and training. Uh, thank you to the audience for joining us today. As we begin, let me just remind you that you can use that chat feature on your screen, type in questions and comments as we go, and we'll be bringing them into the conversation. And with that, I'd like to welcome to our stage, Susie and Brian. Hi, Remy. Thank you for having us. Oh, thanks for joining us. To get started, I think it would be nice if you would tell the audience a little bit about who you are, where you're from, and how you got interested in EMS and EMS research in particular. I am Susie Burnett. I am a paramedic in the central New York area, and I'm also a doctoral candidate at the University at Albany, where I'm studying health communication at the intersection of organizational communication. I also work with Dr. Clemency at the University at Buffalo in emergency medicine and EMS research, uh, where we recently brought the CARES program, Cardiac Arrest Registry to Enhance Survival, to New York as a statewide program. I started uh, doing research several years ago, uh, but felt like there was a lack of research regarding EMS and EMS folks. And so that is where the majority of my interests lie in order to improve patient care by EMS, but also to improve the entire field for the people who work in it. Awesome. Thanks so much for sharing your time today with us. Dr. Clemency. And I'm Brian Clemency, and I. No, I had the I had the whirly bird of death and my thing froze again just as I was supposed to get on. So I quickly rebooted. I'm, I'm happy to be back. I'm a it's professor. <laughs> yeah, I'm a professor of emergency medicine and uh, vice chair of the Department of Emergency Medicine at University of Buffalo. But long before that, I was a firefighter EMT. Um, and I'm the medical director for AMR Buffalo and a number of uh, fire fire departments in the Western New York area. Um, and so I, I do research because research allows me to do the other things I'm interested in and asks uh, allows me an opportunity to answer questions about things I'm, I'm interested in uh, which is uh, which is why I which is why I spend so much time my time doing it there's no shortage of questions to be answered too so that's awesome thank you for sharing your time with us I think today's topic is of interest to a lot of people speaking of interesting questions uh, we'll be talking about EMS witnessed cardiac arrest and I think this is a really important topic because there is that opportunity to intervene early and to get better patient outcomes. Uh, so I'm curious, well, first let's talk about your objective and then I want to hear why you decided to tackle it. So this study was specifically looking to describe how EMS clinicians assess, recognize, and intervene when there is a witnessed cardiac arrest in their presence um, and to identify some of those barriers and facilitators to recognizing and treating EMS witnessed arrest. So what got you all into this particular topic? So 
cardiac arrest has always been of interest to us, but the only thing that's better than um, you know, uh, treating a cardiac arrest successfully is preventing a cardiac arrest in the first place, right? So finding ways to predict a cardiac arrest may occur and intervene early, or if it does occur, putting yourself in the best place possible to treat that patient quickly is definitely a value. Um, and uh, I was fortunate enough to be out in Texas with Remley and others a few years ago, where we looked at pre-hospital cardiac arrest from a big data perspective. We, we did a paper where we looked at vital sign abnormalities that might indicate that there was an impending cardiac arrest. Um, and, and big data is great to answer questions like that, but big data can only take you so far. And so if we really wanna know what the provider is thinking and what's happening beyond what are the, the uh, defined text fields of the PCR, we really needed to ask the providers. And, and we thought that doing a qualitative analysis and asking providers, what are they thinking? What are they seeing? Uh, what's impacting their care was a really nice bookend to a big data study. And we think the two together really can help us better understand what's going on in these cases. Yeah, that's fantastic. I mean, I think a lot of times those big data quantitative studies lead to more questions than they answer. And so we call those hypothesis generating and that I remember that research form very well and it certainly did. And there's actually a podcast episode related to that paper for the audience if you want to go check out the recording. Uh, but it is fascinating because you find these factors that are related, but then the question is, well, how does that perform in real life? And what are what's stopping us from seeing those? Because it's very clear in, in the numbers, but you, we all know in the field, things are quite different. And I love that you all took the qualitative approach because I think it provides a lot more robust data sometimes than what we can get from those discrete drop-down menus. Uh, so I'm excited to dig into the results with you all. But first, I do think it's worth chatting about the methods because this isn't something we typically get to explore. And so I'm gonna invite Tony Fernandez to come help us walk through exactly how this qualitative research was conducted and, and who was in the study. So Tony, to you. Thanks again for joining today. I think um, this is really cool research and I'm excited to talk about it with you. So let's let's go ahead and dive right in. Uh, Remley already uh, discussed your objectives and um, one of the first things that I thought was uh, uh, pretty cool that I've, I'm not very familiar with was uh, you said that you used some uh, meta theoretical uh, consolidation framework um, to develop your semi-structured interview questions. Now, I'd love to dive really, really deep and get a full understanding of what that is, but for the sake of our audience, um, can you give us maybe a, a, a 10, 30,000 foot view of kind of what that means and, and how you used uh, CFIR to, to develop these interview questions? The consolidated framework for implementation research is actually a compilation of several models, theories, and frameworks, and all of their constructs to evaluate what is happening in a situation, what happens with an intervention, and assessing what happens after an intervention has been implemented. And so we used this framework to try to get to some of the factors associated with recognizing and treating uh, witnessed cardiac arrest um, that are associated with some of the main elements of the CIFR. So the CIFR looks at the intervention itself, the process of its implementation, the um, outer setting, so what are the external factors that affect the implementation, the inner setting, and the individuals who are part of implementing the intervention. And so when we created this, we had all of those factors in mind, but we really chose to focus on the humans, so the individuals, and the inner and outer settings um, that are associated with how the individuals would perform their work. You know, we, we often talk about methods when we talk about quantitative papers. I think, you know, you did a t-test or you did a this. And, and I think having a framework really provides you with structure for qualitative research. And when you look at CIFR or another framework, I think it really helps you in two ways. One is it helps you speak a common language. 
And so you're presenting your data within a structure that's already been accepted by others and seen in the literature. And so you kind of have a roadmap to describe what you want to describe. But I think the other thing it does is it helps you think about what you're looking for in the data. You know, you, you have maybe you have five different areas of focus or you're looking at constrainers or enablers. You, you have a whole bunch of qualitative data that's sometimes kind of in mush. And then, and then having that framework allows you to say, yeah, yeah, you know, I, I, didn't, I didn't think about what might enable things externally to this problem, or I didn't think about what the human factors do. So I think sometimes having a framework makes sure you're picking out the things that are important in a systematic way. It's really cool and great explanation. Thank you for that. Um, so let's keep plowing through. Uh, your study, you, you say that your study was conducted at a, a large uh, ALS Western New York Ambulance Agency from February 1st to July 31st, 2021. Um, your recruitment strategy I thought was really interesting. Can you walk us through uh, how you were able to identify participants and, and get them to, uh, to, to play? Absolutely. So several times a day, members of our research team looked through all of the cases that were performed by the crews um, at that agency. And we identified cardiac arrests, and then we went through the cardiac arrest charts to see if these were EMS witnessed. So once we identified one that was EMS witnessed, we got in touch with members of the crew to see if they wanted to participate. This was a challenge because we wanted to talk to them within 72 hours of the time of the call. And so the reason for that was because we wanted to make sure that everyone's memory about the call was still intact and it wasn't influenced by any sorts of other calls that they could have done in the meantime. And so once someone agreed to participate, we set up a time for an interview and um, they met with us. And the people who uh, were able and willing to participate were so generous with their time um, in how they described the events and how they described what they were feeling at the time uh, that that was really uh, one of the highlights of our methods in that we spoke to them while it was still fresh and they were willing to share all of the things that they were thinking about. And when we look at a study on a topic like EMS witness cardiac arrest, we want to make sure we have adequate protections for our providers in place. So one of the protections is that none of their medical directors, and, and I am one of them, will ever be able to track back the data to an individual provider. So if I'm going to see something or another member of the medical direction team, it's always de-identified before it gets it to us. And we do that because we want the providers to be able to speak freely and openly about their concerns without worry of, oh, Dr. Clements, he's gonna hear I thought this, but I really think I should have thought this. The other thing about the 72 hour window, besides like Susie said, making sure it's fresh in the provider's mind, the 72 hour window also gives the providers kind of carte blanche to ghost us if they want to, right? If, the, if, if, if they don't wanna respond or they don't wanna call us back or they don't wanna to, to follow up with the appointment, that is totally fine. And at 72 hours, you know, the stagecoach turns into a pumpkin again, and we just move on. And so having that 72-hour break, I think, was important for both of those reasons. Yeah, I agree. And uh, great explanation. That, that must have been a, a heck of a lot of work to try and try and get in touch with these folks and get them to play. So I, I, I commend you for that. And I'm, I'm sure that was a no easy undertaking. So these were, and these were not short interviews either. These were pretty lengthy interviews. Um, I think you had an average of about an hour and they range from about 45 to 90 minutes. Um, okay. So you were able to spend a lot of time with these folks. And I really thought it was interesting how you used some elements from the PCR to kind of uh, tease out different information. So uh, let, let's start there. Can you tell us about how you used the, some of the Utstein elements from the PCR and how, how you incorporated those into your interview? Absolutely. So when we looked at each chart, we pulled out those data points that were interesting to us, um, the Utstein data points, of course, but also the times. And so when we looked at the times, we tried to understand 
what was happening on the scene of the call or during transport that made those times look the way that they did um, or made made some of the interventions um, appear at the time that they did. Once we got a good sense of those um, documentable elements, if you will, we were able to talk to the crews who who wrote the chart or who participated in the call about the stuff that's not in the chart. Um, for example, why was it that um, this intervention was delayed? Why was it, um, you know, why did these things happen in the order in which they were documented to have appeared? And quite often that led to the stuff that wasn't really written down. For example, a crew knew that a patient had arrested, but they were on the stair chair in the middle of the staircase. So they knew that they needed to do CPR, but there were only two people and they were stuck in the staircase and that's not an optimal location for delivering chest compressions. And so they had to finish descending the stairs before they could intervene. And so we shared the chart with them uh, to refresh their memories um, and most often people were like oh here's why i wrote that here's what i was thinking um, at this time and so it was a great way to sort of collect a holistic view of what happened on the cardiac arrest and, and i think that's so interesting susie because you know we whenever we're looking at charts and doing a retrospective study we are looking at data through our lens as the reviewer Right, and so you're looking at someone put this information and that information, and and we're naturally inferring what that means. And so to hand the chart back to the provider and say, what did you mean by this, or what were you thinking? Often they're thinking something different than what we think they're thinking when we're looking at that data. Yeah, and to you kind of teed that up for me. So. Um, one of the things that I thought was really interesting were you gave them opportunities to reflect on their performance. Um, and I, can you kind of walk us through that? Because that sounds like a, those, those are probably some really interesting conversations. They absolutely were. So one of the benefits that we had in this study specifically was that people were going through the case again um, after they'd probably gone through it while they had to write the chart, while they were telling people at the end of the day, or while they were, um, you know, putting themselves to bed that night, for example, you know, they were able to talk it out uh, in slightly different ways with someone who understood. And so they were able to think about how they did what they did, but why, why they did what they did. Um, for example, one crew was very generous. Um, actually, they were all very generous. Everyone was fantastic. Um, but one crew very specifically said, I don't like to do things this way. I don't like to rush like this, but the scene was unsafe. And so we had to move. And so they may have looked back on their performance at first thinking, you know, maybe I could have made a different um, difference. I, I could have done something differently if only I'd been able to stay. But then when they really talked it out, they're like, we weren't safe and we needed to get to a safer place. And so we had to move. And it sort of helped people solidify some of their decision making and um, to really add to their experience arsenal about how they might do a case like that again in the future or a case that's similar to that. Very cool. So in, in going back through these interviews, you were, um, they were coded, right, to determine categories of enabling and constraining factors. Um, and I think it's really important. I don't want to get into your results just yet, but can you help our audience understand what enabling and constraining factors are so they can help interpret your results in, uh, in, in a couple minutes, I promise. <laughs> sure. Enabling factors are the things that are helpful, the things that um, made something a little bit easier to run. Um, and for a lot of the folks that we spoke to, 
this was not their first cardiac arrest. They've had plenty of others. They've had plenty of other serious cases. And so they were able to look at this case and sometimes compare it to other cases that they'd had to say, this was helpful. Because this happened, uh, we had a, a better outcome or we were better able to intervene or um, we had this and thank goodness we didn't have this other thing. The constraining factors are the ones that are less helpful, the things that sort of get in the way or interfere with the management of the case. For example, um, you mentioned earlier that we did this study from February to July. So if you're familiar with Western New York, that is a lot of seasons incorporated. So we have the winter, we have spring, uh, we have mud, and then we have summer, which is mud is like that fifth season that we have twice a year or so. And so people were able to tell us the things that sort of got in their way. For example, an enabling factor in some cases was, well, at least it wasn't icy because that would have, that would have been terrible. It was a nice dry day, the sidewalk was dry. A constraining factor could very well be the opposite. There was so much snow, it was so icy this made this part difficult and so we sort of used that and expanded that through um, what people were feeling intrapersonally what they found interpersonally and the environmental conditions for enabling and constraining factors thank you for that uh, explanation and i know everyone uh, including myself is chomping at the bit to get to your results uh, but before we do that, uh, I, I want to open it up to the rest of our panelists to see if anyone else has any methods related questions. Um, and then as everyone else, I'm really excited to talk about your results. Hi, this is Bill Toon. So uh, did you did you look at the, the um, files from the uh, that were maintained by the monitor defibrillator? Did you look at the process files, the PCO files, depending on what device you were using to look at the time sequence there? And then also, was there was there sequencing of the clocks that were involved from dispatch to what's carried on the ambulance to the personnel's way of keeping time? That, that's a great question. So um, we did not use monitor data in this uh, review. We have used it uh, for a number of different qualitative and quantitative um, quality improvement efforts. Um, for this, unfortunately, we felt it was going to add a, another level of complexity uh, beyond what, what we were able to do, um, partially because this was done with Zoom interviews and uh, a number of other kind of off-site things. And so we were unable to make that work. That's a, a great point. Um, in terms of clocks, we sync dispatch data um, and times into the PCR automatically. And so that does give us some bookends, but within the on-scene time, we are always at the mercy of uh, the provider's watch if they're not going back to their monitor. Their monitor will, is synced to the same time frame also. Um, so that is definitely an area um, where there potentially could be some error. We know that human recall is fraught with error. And so one of the things we were able to do was try to extract the time of arrest from the quantitative data we looked at, whether it's estimating it based on CPR initiation time, or this happened as we were rolling wheels, or another intervention, and then link that back. And it's really, really interesting to ask people three days later about timing and comparing uh, overall timing, not just order, but how long did something take you? Um, because we recall it often, they're very different, right? When you're in the middle of treating a patient, everything's happening much faster or slower, depending on what's going on. And so you kind of find yourself in a time dilation. So I think, I think time is a really, really interesting topic to talk about when thinking about studies like this. Thanks for that question. And that fits nicely with one that came in from an audience member, Chris in addition to mentioning the synchronization of the times with the dispatch, uh, he asked about would they document a delay in care if there was an issue like scene safety? Is there a place for them to do that and would they use that? It's interesting because sometimes those things are documented but not, um, not explicitly so, right? 
sometimes you say there's something in the PCR that may say here was a challenge, um, and and but the the exact relationship or the um, order of magnitude to which that delays a particular intervention is not something we something we typically write in the PCR, right? We may write we needed to get off scene because this was going on, um, but we are we're we're not always writing as specifically about the things we think about. And I think that's the way we're taught, right? We're taught you're writing a patient record. And so it's about your patient, not about you, right? That's in the hospital, that's in the pre-hospital arena. And so I think I think that's appropriate to, to write factual narratives, um, but, but to really dig into what's going on, that, that's why we need studies like this. Absolutely, highlights the richness of what you can get in a qualitative interview for sure. Jeff. Thank you. Yeah, I had two questions for y'all. And first of all, thanks again for joining us and showing us this terrific research. I commend you. I know how much work it can be to get all these interviews, transcribe them. So you did a lot of work. So thank you. Thank you. First off, I was wondering um, in terms of how you segmented your results, you looked at both anticipated and unanticipated cardiac arrests as well as uh, predicted and uh, um, unpredictable cardiac arrests. I was wondering, were those things that you had asked the paramedics or EMTs during the interviews, or was this something maybe that was from the chart? I guess I'm just thinking about my personal experience. I feel like in hindsight, all of the ones that I've witnessed have been, oh yeah, of course I could have predicted that. Oh yeah, of course that was anticipated. But uh, it seems like there's, kind of hindsight bias. So I was curious how you dealt with that. So we used um, prodromal symptoms as our determination on if something was predictable or unpredictable. And so things like chest pain or respiratory symptoms or um, GI upset or a, a change in mental status, a neuro symptom, if you will. So those were how we determined which things were predictable. Now, as you noticed, many of these cases were preceded by a prodrome. And so that was sort of one of the interesting findings here in that not all of those cases were anticipated. And so the determination of anticipation came from the chart for sure, but often had to do with what we discussed during the interview. And so that was usually someone saying, well, we knew that they were going into arrest and so we wanted to hurry up because we saw that their, uh, their situation was declining. Or we thought that we weren't gonna be able to make it very far and so we needed to request additional resources. Or um, one crew in particular has a language between them. And so the paramedic said to his partner, this is a right zipper patient. Susie froze for me. I'm not sure about anybody else. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm still here. But yeah, so she, I, I, I know what she alluded to, sort of this was a, a right zipper patient, which was a way the two providers could speak to each other uh, to say there's something going on that mm -hmm. potentially is, is critical, right? So it's both shorthand, but it also allows you to say, oh my goodness, I think grandma's going to code without saying in front of grandma's kids, oh my goodness, grandma's going to code. I think this was, I think, uh, an interesting part of, of the study process, though, thinking about these, these two categories, right? Earlier, I alluded to that frameworks are really helpful because it allows you to use what other people have done to, to put your data in a certain way. Um, but there was no framework for this particular problem, right? And so we looked at the data and we were trying to find a way to explain it to the reader and categorize it, right? And so we we, we sort of found ourselves with this sort of two by two table in our mind of, of where are there signs that perhaps in retrospect could have been recognized, whether they were there or not, that we can see. And then the other was more of the provider gestalt, right? They thought there was something gonna go on and, and they thought this patient had a high 
uh, pre-treatment probability of, of, of going into a restaurant or something bad. And you can kind of see a yes, no for both those, almost like a chi-square, right? And, and patients in the study fall into all four of those boxes, right? You have patients where the reviewer looks at the chart and goes, oh my goodness, this patient is totally going to code. And the provider goes, no, I don't think so because of this, that, and the other. And then you've got other cases where the provider's gestalt is something else is, is really bad here, even though there may not be objective signs the same way. And so it's really interesting, the interplay of, of both of those, both the, the somewhat objective prodromal symptoms and signs and vital signs and, and the provider gestalt and how both of those things really fit into better understanding what was happening. Thank you so much for explaining that. It's yeah, not easy to figure it out, but definitely sounds like you um, were really able to think about this well. One more quick question. I was just wondering about the context of your EMS system. As we all know, there are so many different EMS systems and we have people joining us from all across the country, all across the the world. So I was wondering if you could tell us briefly a little bit about the Western New York AMR system, maybe our fire police dispatch on every call and help is already there, or is it always just a paramedic and an EMT response yeah. times? So it's a little bit about so, that. So it's, it's quite a mixture. So within the city of Buffalo, uh, AMR provides uh, multi-tier response, uh, BLS, AEMT, and paramedic um, with supervisor fly cars to back them up. Um, that is in addition to the BLS non-transport fire department. Um, and so within the city of Buffalo, um, there's that standardization and there's MPDS uh, through the county system. However, AMR also provides uh, coverage to the city of Niagara Falls and many surrounding suburbs where there is a lot of variation among how dispatch is done, the structure of the fire department and other pieces like that. Um, and so there really is um, a lot of uh, heterogeneity uh, among the responses based on the municipality. And it's just, it's interesting because it shows, although you have one agency alone, there's so many factors beyond the agency that affect care. And so the same agency, even, even the same provider, maybe being positioned, maybe starts a sh shift in the city and he's positioned out into one of the more suburban or rural parts of, of the coverage area that's a very different cardiac arrest now, even though it's the same provider who started at 8 a.m. in one location. Um, and it really just speaks, I think, to all the variables beyond the provider and the ambulance that really affect pre-hospital care. Yeah, and I think that study setting is really important. And it's nice that you had that heterogeneity so you can capture probably a, a broader cross-section of those factors that you really got to dig into. Um, as we enter the results, I, I am curious about one more thing in the methods. This topic and reliving an, a cardiac arrest encounter can be you know, mentally burdensome and can be taxing. Did you all run into any issues getting this approved by an institutional review board, or did you have to have anything in place for exploring what could potentially be a traumatic event for the provider? We do have EAP available, and we have a, a number of different outs, right? I think the most important thing was making sure that all providers who participated were doing so freely uh, and, and, and had multiple ways to not participate if they didn't want to. Um, so while, while there can be unexpected things whenever you're discussing a stressful situation, we do our best to mitigate that, but I think it all starts with not forcing anybody into a position that they don't wanna be in. And, and I think our providers um, have the opportunity to self-select now that also, though, introduces potential bias, right? Because you may have providers who have more traumatic calls or have um, uh, perceived increased stressors about calls, and they may have self-selected out of interviews. That is a potential cause of systematic bias in the literature and in the data. Um, but I think I, that's acceptable um, uh, trade-off to make sure we're protecting our providers. Additionally, we sent some resources for um, mental health um, bolstering, um, just some some numbers people could call or some resources people could use if this became traumatic um, or or bothered them in any way. And I think that at the time that we collected data, it was 
as it is now, a very stressful time in EMS. And so even if this case and talking about this case wasn't the the thing that upset someone or, or made them feel a certain way at the time, um, those resources were available to them. Additionally, the folks who were interviewed, um, they, they were interviewed by me and I'm not a person who has any sort of authority. Um, all of the medical directors knew that I was doing this, but they didn't know who I was talking to. And so that increased the, the feeling of their information being safe to share with me. I did share that I was a paramedic. Um, and so that also allowed them to speak to me in a language that um, they knew I could understand. In, in the way they were speaking. And so they didn't have to change their, their talk or their behaviors uh, to speak to someone who may not be as familiar. And, and I'm gonna take some opportunity to get on my, my provider wellness soapbox for a second. Please. The, th the things that bother all of us are not always the things that like check certain boxes, right? So, you know, uh, a crew has a pediatric cardiac arrest and we're all, tripping over ourselves to make sure we're supporting that provider. But that might not be what sets off a provider um, into a dark place or into a challenging time uh, at, at a given time. We don't know, right? There's factors that have nothing to do with their job, right? What was going on with that provider the day before they showed up for their shift? And then had a, a call that by all means should not have been emotionally taxing from objective standards but but was to the provider that day, right? And so I, I think while we think about certain calls that are troubling and that are emotionally straining, that's just the tip of the iceberg. And we are terrible, terrible judges, I think everywhere in EMS, at, at knowing what kind of calls are gonna be most traumatic for our providers. And so we really need to make sure we have environments where they feel like they can come forward because we're not gonna find these cases. Um, we're not going to find the majority of these cases unless our providers feel comfortable coming forward saying this was a stressful situation and, and let me tell you why or I'm not going to tell you why at all but but I need support. Um, I, I just think that that's where we're missing the boat with a lot of EAP stuff right now. Yeah and I think you and I share that soapbox. Uh, Dr. Donnelly in Canada has a lot of great research around what's a critical incident for one person is not necessarily a critical incident for another person. And so you have to take that holistic approach and being open to what is actually a critical incident. Uh, I also think like, perhaps my question would make most of us think, oh, well, maybe these interviews inspire something bad to happen. But the opposite is also possible. A lot of my research has been around burnout and the simple notion of somebody cares about what you're doing enough to talk with you about it is actually therapeutic in some cases. And it sounded like from some of what you all were describing that that opportunity to reflect and say, well, no, the scene was actually unsafe. Like maybe I did the right thing could also potentially be helpful. Yeah, absolutely. So with that, I think let's dive into some of these interviews. There was so much to dig into here. And I was before the show complimenting Susie on putting all this information to a couple of tables is a ton of work. Uh, there was a lot that went into this and I wanna take the moment to dig into some of the key findings here and obviously would love to hear what your key takeaways are. Uh, but first, just some basics. So there were 45 EMS witnessed arrests during the study period um, and you all were able to obtain 29 interviews from 27 cases, which I think speaks very highly to the service valuing uh, this research and wanting to participate in that we know that scheduling constraints, that 72 hours can go by really fast. So I think it's impressive that you were able to get those 29 interviews. Um, were there any challenges or anything that you would do differently in trying to conduct the study again with regards to getting the interviews in 72 hours? I would probably extend the time frame. Um, there were a lot of folks who were working four on, four off sorts of rotations and uh, for a little while, it seemed like all of the witnessed arrests happened on uh, day one for folks. And so they were, it was very bizarre. And so people weren't off in that, in that time frame to be able to discuss the arrest with me. Um, many of them um, did stay up late uh, after working all day and, you know, 
took out some of their family time or some of their sleep time uh, to be able to share that with me. And so if we were to do something like this again, the 72 hour mark was fantastic, but maybe we would extend it just a little bit to accommodate some of the shift lengths. Okay, 73 hours. Final, <laughs> <No>. final. <laughs> that would have solved everything, I'm sure. Yep, there it was. <laughs> uh, I, I think that's a good point because there's that fine balance between recall bias where I might not remember the event as clearly and understanding how EMS shifts work and that I just might not be available for an interview. So I, I think that's important feedback there. And um, again, these were these were long interviews, right? Yeah. So these weren't like, let, let, let's talk really quickly when I see at the hospital interviews. Uh, these were need to find a quiet place. You're in a, you're need to block out an hour or more of your life, and so that that's not necessarily conducive to being on shift or or really doing anything. Right. With all the Zoom these days, you know, it's it's hard to find another block just to squeeze in. So I totally I think it's very it speaks very highly of the providers donating their time and wanting to be part of this work. And there are some really important findings in here to show for it. Uh, one of those is this notion of preceding factors. So Jeff asked about it in the methods and the prodromes that we're seeing. So some of them were things that we'd expect, but I'm curious, were there any surprises for you in some of the things that preceded the arrests? The one case that was not anticipated, the patient had a mechanical fall and had hip pain. So there were no prodromes. And that was the most mind-blowing of the cases because everyone um, that I spoke to regarding that case was like didn't make sense <laughs> just didn't make sense it was about to be a BLS transport for hip pain to the hospital and and then the patient died I think one of the things that we did see in the data that, that goes along with, I think, our understanding is that uh, there were a lot of respiratory prodromes, right? right? And I think when we look at EMS witnessed cardiac arrest, right? And that's a, that's a subset of all cardiac arrests. Um, but a lot of them seem to either be respiratory or there's something else with obvious respiratory signs, right? So whether, whether the respiratory cause is the primary cause or if it's a secondary manifestation of something else, respiratory symptoms i think are something that time and again literature says we need to make sure we're we're really respecting and so i think the take-home message from that is if you see somebody whose breathing doesn't look right even if they're not complaining uh that's something you really you really got to respect and some patients are saturating okay-ish right but they're only saturating okay-ish because they've got monster accessory muscle use and everything else and they're kind of hanging on um, and so I, I think if there's one physical exam abnormality that that really I think should you know kind of raise the hair on the back of our neck, um, it's seeing respiratory stuff. And I think the literature here bears that out. Yeah, and I think that's a key piece. And I, I think this came out in one of the interviews, and perhaps Susie you can elaborate a little. But you know the the clinicians were talking about oh I sh I should have seen that or you know there was something there. Um, but it was interesting that really just over half of the cases, the providers really thought this was gonna happen. Um, mm -hmm. What were some of the things you found there that caused us to not predict it? I remember one line from the paper that stuck out really strongly with me was this notion of, um, I see so many of these patients with this condition and they don't arrest and then this happened. Yes, and that's very common that there were a lot of cases that were just run-of-the-mill respiratory or syncope or chest pain. And if we were to see every case with any of these prodromes and then say, yes, they will probably devolve into cardiac arrest in front of me, we would be wrong so often. And so a lot of these cases had to do with um, their presentation was very much like the case that they had, you know, earlier in the day, this person had trouble breathing, they gave them a breathing treatment um, and, and treated them for their breathing problem and they survived and they were just fine. And so some of these were just like every other call. 
And so that was that was one of the more interesting things. And I think about that in my work as a paramedic as well, that I probably would have had the same decision. You know, this person is just the same sort of respiratory case I had earlier today. And so I'm going to treat them in the same way I treated the other patient and anticipate the same outcome. Right. That comfort based on previous cases can certainly sneak in. I know that uh, I've had that happen to me as well. Mm -hmm. uh, so I want to look here at table two for those who are following along. There's so much information in this, but it's laid out so organized here in the types of elements that were, you know, affecting recognition and treatment of this witness arrest. Uh, the environmental elements, we talked a little bit about weather, um, but that wasn't the only thing that came out. What were some of the other aspects of the environment that stuck out to you as being important? The spacing and the ability to use the space uh, was a really important environmental element because if someone arrested in their home or outside and there was space for all of the hands to work, that made this management a lot easier. Um, but in smaller spaces, cluttered spaces, or spaces where the equipment was available, but someone just couldn't reach it. Think about being in the back of an ambulance, for example, with a lot of other people. That made this really difficult, not just to manage the arrest, but in some cases to recognize that the patient was arresting simply because of where someone had to be located because of the confines of the space. So that, along with um, just a couple of additional pieces of the patient's body habitus, so in some ways, these patients were easier to um, manage because they were smaller or they were located in a space where moving them with two people was suitable or easy. And in some cases that just didn't happen. The patient was larger, the space wasn't uh, as helpful or they couldn't get enough crew members into a space to mm -hmm. move a patient. And so those are a lot of things that I think when you, you think through your own experiences, you're like, yep, I've had that. Yep, I've seen that. But that was reported so frequently by our interviewees. Absolutely. I think that spacing is interesting as well as they mentioned the presence of bystanders around. So yeah. for perhaps the provider who felt the scene was unsafe, there's a lot of bystanders. Something that stuck out to me, the type of arrest seemed to also be important when it was a traumatic arrest due to a firearm injury. The stakes seemed to be a little bit higher, especially if there's other people still around. So that, that concern around team safety plays a role in how fast we get into the back of the ambulance and then are we constrained there to, to run this code? And do you have other providers on scene to come help you? Uh, so, so many of these factors came out in you know, what's not necessarily a huge number of interviews. So I think that these patterns are definitely repeating themselves. Absolutely. And the bystanders in some ways were helpful. There was one case in particular where the family members knew that the patient was in extremis. The family members were doing everything they could think of to try to be helpful to the crew, to persuade the patient, to um, allow treatment, to um, sit on the stretcher, to get in the ambulance, to, to get the help of family members and bystanders is extremely important for the EMS crews who try to manage these these scenarios but then especially in the trauma case or um, not even in the trauma case cases for example um, some cases that just happen to be in public where people aren't sure what's going on they just see an ambulance they see that there's a person down and they want to um, they want to intervene um, presumably on the, the behalf of the, the person who needs the assistance, um, but that makes the entire scenario more difficult for the person to, to run and to manage for a longer duration because they're still considering their safety, they're still considering um, the other scene factors. Absolutely. And when we move into the crew-related elements, a lot of interesting pieces came up, and this immediately brought to mind some previous research by Dr. Daniel Patterson looking at crew dyads and triads, and if you have worked with the person before, does that influence the way that you approach a case? 
Uh, and so I think you found some of these things here in terms of whether or not the crew already knew each other. And could you walk us through some of the enablers around how, you know, having familiarity with the crew or anything else that you saw in the crew? It was absolutely helpful if the crew had worked together before. Um, and by crew, I'm not just talking about the transporting ambulance crew, but also the, the fire department, the police officers, et cetera. And so anybody who was on scene who'd worked together before sort of had this uh, working relationship knowledge, not just in cardiac arrest care, but if they'd managed other cases before, it was more helpful. And when they hadn't meant, um, when they hadn't dealt with cardiac arrests, for example, if they had dealt with other patients who were critically injured or, or very sick, if they'd managed those types of cases together, they felt, at least the interviewees felt, that it was easier to manage these cardiac arrest cases. There was trust already built in to say, hey, so-and-so, I need you to do this thing, and then the person would go do it. There was just that implied trust. The other thing that was really fascinating was even when the crews had never worked together before, but the crew members had trained on these sorts of things before, um, either together or separately, it was easier for these cases to be managed. And so if the EMS crew, the transporting EMS crew, um, knew that so-and-so fire department does a drill on this every month, then they felt like those crew members had had been better able to help them because they were more familiar with the equipment and the process of treating a person who's peri-arrest and then in cardiac arrest. So advanced training was helpful as well, even if people hadn't been working together uh, before, because in some cases, the partner or the firefighters or the police officers were new, but the backup crew ended up having a paramedic or an advanced EMT on board. And so that helped the, the managing paramedic or advanced EMT cognitively offload some of the tasks onto someone else they knew could do them for them. Um, so no need for me to think about um, getting meds together because this person knows how it's supposed to go and they're already getting the meds together. Yeah, I think that hidden language sort of emerges and is really interesting. There's a lot of actionable takeaways from that as well in terms of yeah, how, how far a simple introduction in the morning could go if you end up with a case like this in the afternoon. Um, and I, I'm, I know time flies when we're having fun and I have that unfavorable task of keeping us on time. So as we round out the last few minutes here, I am gonna take a question from the audience and then I'm going to invite our other panelists to jump in with any questions so that I don't take all the time with all of my questions. Uh, so starting with Shannon here, we have a question around, did you look at the educational factors of the participating providers? Were they all ACLS certified? Did they have any uh, specific additional training, predominantly hands-on system education, online education. This was during COVID-19, so that's also interesting. Um, but could you describe a little bit about the educational factors? Yeah, so while there were common educational initiatives um, at the agency, remember we looked at providers who are basic EMTs, AEMTs, and paramedics. And so the three groups um, definitely uh, saw this through different lenses. One of the things that we're, we're very lucky is we have opportunities to train in person that was obviously put on hold in the middle of, of COVID, but we really try to train all levels together. And while we do have times where we're going to talk about, you know, interfacility transport drugs or something that is, is a distinctly paramedic thing, cardiac arrest and treating the peri-arresting patient really is a team sport. And so we really try to have all levels in the room together when we're talking about these things. Um, so we're thinking about a common approach and, and a common set of goals. And I think that's super important. Yeah, train in a real world setting, absolutely. Uh, now, any of our panelists have an additional question or else I have a final question. Oh, Jeff. Thanks for covering training. I mean, it definitely seems like coming out of here that just knowing your standard ACLS protocols, knowing what drug dosages to give is not at all enough. I mean, so much of it is these uh, 
interpersonal factors. So I'm glad that you were really able to get that out. I was wondering if you had any other sort of policy changes coming out of this that you would recommend uh, or if or if anything has changed at your agency as a result of this excellent research that you've done. Yeah, so not um, not a policy, but but a way we think about it. And, and so one of the important things that we've really talked about is assessing your patient kind of one more time before you lift them off the ground, right? There's so much inertia, especially when you show up on scene and we'll talk about some of the environmental factors, right? Everyone's like, go, 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 go. Taking a second um, before you lift your patient off the ground to say, is this someone who is stable? Or is this someone who needs a life-threatening, a life-saving intervention before you begin the odyssey down the spiral staircase and out the door and on the way, right? Sometimes we see patients who have arrested in the ambulance, and we find our, we ask ourselves, did they arrest as we entered the ambulance, or is that the first time we were able to notice this peri-arresting behavior? And and so we've really tried to talk a lot about how can we take that extra moment and say is this someone we need to work where we find them or can they go out in in the current state and then the other thing we've tried to really discuss and it's this is going to be i think uh, not to just literature is you know if you've got someone who's not doing well in a horizontal position and all of a sudden you put their head up you've now dropped their cerebral perfusion pressure, pressure um, precipitously, right? And so little things like that and, and thinking about what do we need to do for this patient before we instinctively just whisk them off to the ambulance, um, that's really important. And I think this paper has begun that larger dialogue within our agency. Yeah, that's a really good point, thank you. And then one more quick question, I guess, as a fellow EMS research and data nerd, so I know that you collect a ton of research, uh, sorry, a ton of data as part of your CARES elements. I was wondering if there was anything that came out of here that is not in your CARES required or supplemental data points that you would recommend agencies maybe consider collecting in the future that was particularly insightful for you all. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a great question. I, I think, I think it's, it's, it's what did that patient look like before you took them off the ground, like we keep talking about. I think that's a point, um, you know, we review 100% of our cardiac arrests. Um, we were lucky enough to do them um, in a couple different ways. In addition to outcome data, we take a look at the monitor data. We listen to the audio tapes of the med direction, and we have a, a closed system for agency medical direction for cardiac arrest, as well as the PCR. Um, and, and so we, we, we have data in lots of directions, but that what did they look like when we first walked in? What's our gestalt? Um, taking a minute to go back to the providers and find out what that is, is hugely important. And although we've got all these rich data elements, that's the one thing we can't get without going back to, after the fact to the provider. That's a really good point. Thank you. Thank you. Well, we have reached the end of our time, but I do want to thank both of you for sharing your time with us. And I want to give you the last word. If there's any last item or just one thing that you would want people to remember from reading this study, I'll give you a second to say that before I carry us out. So Susie, let's start with you. The most important thing that I think comes from this study is that we talk about skills and algorithms and interventions and all of the mechanics about cardiac arrest and about EMS work. And we don't always recognize the humans who do all of that work. And so the best part about this study for me was getting to interact with the humans and getting to hear their perspectives. And I'm hoping that their generosity uh, is useful to others because I think we can all see a lot of ourselves in our own practices in this work. I think that's huge too. Brian. I think, you know, having a culture of safety is all about having a place where providers feel comfortable talking about their cases, whether it be in terms of research or quality improvement. And I, I am just so lucky to be in an organization and a location where our providers feel comfortable enough with our team uh, to talk about the things that went well, and also sometimes talk about the things that don't go well. Because if we're not gonna talk about it, we're never gonna make it better. 
Absolutely. And again, I just want to thank you not only for sharing your time today, but for all of the work that went into not only doing the study, but getting it published. That's no easy feat. I know when you see it in these two tables, it looks so clean and concise, but that was a ton of work and a great contribution to our literature. So thank you all again, and we hope to have you back again. Thanks, Remily. This has been thank great. You. Thank you. And for our audience, I'm going to tie up some things here for us. So as a reminder, uh, we have the education version of this podcast, and uh, that's going to be October 28th, Friday. And then we are going to be back here with the clinical version in November. So that's the second Monday of the month, and that will be Monday, November 14th. Thank you all again for all of your questions and for joining us, and we look forward to seeing you again next time. We hope you have enjoyed and learned from this PCRF Journal Club. Please share it with other interested EMS professionals. An archive of past journal clubs can be found at pcrfpodcast.org. You can also find us on Facebook at PCRF at UCLA and on our website, prehospitalcare.org. A special thank you to our sponsors, Limmer Education, providing educational tools for success at every stage of your EMS journey. And ESO, dedicated to improving community health and safety through the power of data. Mm -hmm.